The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. If we haven't met, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. I had someone the other day say to me, so after six and a half years, does it feel weird to finally do a sermon series on running? And the answer to that question is, um, is it does. And honestly, it feels like I've got a little, I've got a little anxiety going as I think about this because, because sometimes we can talk about things that really matter a lot to us and other people don't really care uh, too much about. So the thing that, that I have, I've just honestly been praying about all week is the, is the things that we would talk about as we, as we talk about running the race that matters would just give God honor and glory. And I am gonna share some things that, that, that have impacted me in terms of physical running, but I really just want this about to be about the discipleship. That's my, that's my focus. So something that you can join me in praying about over the next several weeks as we, as we talk about this is you can just pray about that for me, that I would, that the things that we would focus on would be honoring and glorifying um, to God. So, so in that vein of, of being a runner, I have, I'm currently on a run streak and what that means is you run every day, and I have run um, every day since Thanksgiving Day of 2014. So at least a mile a day. Yep. And that is that is 3,125 days in a row. I figured that out. There's this great app that someone has created that keeps track of that for me, so I don't constantly have to figure out what that, what that looks like. And one of the questions that I have been asked a number of times over those 3,125 days, like if you were to ask me today your question, um, you probably have a lot of questions. You might have some questions for my wife about that. But one of the questions you might ask is, how do you run 3,125 days in a row? Like, how does that, how does that happen? Um, and there's really no short answer for that question. Technically, um, that, that this streak began on, as I said, Thanksgiving Day, which was November 27th, um, 2014, where, uh, where I got this shirt. I ran the Irvington Turkey Trot. It's in Irvington, Virginia. I ran, uh, ran five miles um, on that day. Like, technically... That's, that's how you run every day for eight and a half years, is you start somewhere. There's a starting point, a specified starting point. But that wasn't my only, that wasn't my only run streak. Um, starting in uh, 2011, I used to subscribe to Runner's World magazine, and they had this, this challenge. It was just called the Runner's World Run Streak, and the challenge was to run every day from Thanksgiving Day of 2011 to, uh, to New Year's Day. That was 39 days. Like, that was the challenge. So I did that, and 
I thought that was really awesome, so I just kept that streak going until the middle of June of 2012, June 18th, in fact, of 2012, and that was 209 days in a row. I hit 209 days in a row. I was having all sorts of um, all sorts of physical ailments, as you might imagine, like that. Um, that's something that happens, and I had to I had to take a break. That break uh, required, like I went to the doctor because I was having an issue, I think it was with my knees, and my wife is awesome. This is what we're gonna talk about a little later. If you wanna run the race that matters to start well, you have to have a good support system. My wife was a good support system, and she looked at the doctor and she said, now he's not supposed to run, right? And that time, that one time, I listened to her, um, and I stopped my run streak uh, over that. So how do you run? And then between that time and November 27th of 2014, I had run different run streaks of varying lengths, usually until I was sick or I was injured and all those kinds of things. How do you run 3,125 days in a row? Um, I might go back to 2009, actually. I was, on, uh, I, was, I was on Facebook one day, and a friend of mine named Luke was a youth pastor at another church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where we were living at the time, and he was posting, like he was running like six miles, eight miles, and ten miles at a time, and I, I was insanely jealous of this, you should know trying to figure that out. So I did something that was uncharacteristic for me. I demonstrated some humility and I reached out to him and I said, Luke, can we have coffee? Because I have a question I want to ask you. So we met at Starbucks in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and we sat down and we exchanged pleasantries. And then I said, okay, I just got to know, how do, you, how do you run six miles at a time? How do you run eight miles at a time? How do you run 10 miles at a time? I need you to tell me. And he said, um, he said, oh, that's easy. Then he said, and this, this question, this question actually, the question and his answer actually kind of changed my life. It's one of those life-altering things. He said, where do you run? And I said, well, usually a few times a week I run on, I just run on the treadmill at the Y in Cedar Rapids, maybe two or three miles at a time. And he said, well, that's your problem. What you need to do is you need to run three, four, or five miles away from your house. And then when you get there, you'll be faced with a choice. You can run home, you can walk home, or you can call your wife to come and get you. And I think it was, I don't remember what day of the week that was, um, but the following week, I, I, I started running outside. Um, and that, like that conversation in so many ways um, changed the trajectory of, of a part of my life that's, that's become really important. Um, but you might even actually go back a little bit um, before that. Actually, a lot before that. I'm old and I forget how time works. Sometimes I say just a few years ago, when in reality I mean like 15 years ago. A long time ago when I was at, in middle school and high school, I ran on the track team. I ran the one mile and the two mile. And I was not competitive at all. But I would give anything to run a six-minute mile um, at my age right now. But it's just never going to happen. Um, I know that. How does somebody run 3,125 days in a row? It actually goes back further 
than junior high and, and high school. And, and this is something that, that encompasses all of us, believe it or not. See, there's this, there's this ligament on your spine. And it starts, if you feel the back of your head, you, that little bump in the middle of the back of your head, and it runs about seven vertebrae or so down your spine to the seventh one. It's the last vertebrae on your neck, and it's called the nuchal ligament. And its formal function is to limit forward, forward flexion of the head and the cervical spine. So in layman's terms, what happens is it connects your spine with your head, and when you're running, it keeps your head from flopping all around. Sometime if you want to do something fun, look up pigs running on treadmills on YouTube, and you'll see what it looks like when you do not have this ligament. The head is bouncing all over the place. So we have this, we have this design in us. All of us have it. All of us have this ligament, this design, where our body is literally designed to run. You are, and whether you are a runner or not, I know you won't believe this if you're not a runner. And I know you'll tell me afterwards, you'll tell me all of the jokes that you've heard about not being a runner. But like you, you literally, you physically were born um, to run. But it's not just that ligament, it's, it's your arms. When you pump your arms when you're running, it's actually serving to steady your body. You may not know this, but your entire body is a sweat gland. It's not that hard to not know that over the past few weeks. So your body dissipates heat quickly. Animals rely on panting to keep cool, which interferes with their breathing, which is why when you see a rabbit, it runs a short distance and then stops, and then runs a short distance and stops. So your bodies were designed to run. We were born to run. And the way to do this is to recognize that it's a lifetime commitment. Now, I don't know how, I'm going to use the word impressive, 3,125 days is. Um, the current record, and the still going record, by the way, is by a gentleman by the name of Mark Washburn. His streak is 12,272 days. I did the math on that today. That's 32 and a half years. Every day, his streak began on December 31st of 1989, actually 33 and a half years. December 31st, 1989 is when he started his run streak. And again, this is a, this is a lifetime commitment. Many of our message series, series, series get started in the same way. We're sitting in the staff room. We're talking about what's going on in our body. We're talking about what we're seeing and observing and hearing from small groups and hearing from conversations. And th th we kind of came up with this, this phrase came out, and it was something to the effect of making disciples requires a long-term commitment. And then Pastor Joe, very quickly, I don't know if you remember this, very quickly looked at me and said, it's not a long-term commitment, it's a lifetime commitment. Making disciples is a lifetime commitment. It's a lifetime commitment. And as we talked more about this, the series Running the Race That Matters was born and we've broken this down. We're going to talk about this over the next three weeks. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of starting strong. Next week, we're going to talk about the importance of running his race. Like we, when, when you run a race, 
You, you don't run the route that you want to run. You run someone else's route. And in this case, when we think about discipleship, what we're doing is we're running the race that God has set before us. And we're going to talk about that. That's actually from Hebrews chapter 12. And then lastly, we're going to talk about finishing well. So these three things is, as we think about running the race that matters, this is how we accomplish this. And a question that we ought to ask is, well, what's, what's the race that matters? What, we have to define that term. What is the race that matters? And the race that matters simply is discipleship. Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, helping other people become disciples of Jesus Christ, that's what it means to run the race that matters, is to be a disciple and to make disciples. And we have to remember that we're making disciples of Jesus Christ. As we've talked about a number of times over the past several series, as we've gone through books together, as we've gone through letters together, the way each one of those authors begins their letter is they tell us about someone and they tell us about Jesus. They don't start with the problems and the situations in the communities to which those authors are penning their letters. They start with Jesus. So the first thing that we have to wrap our minds around in is, is running the race that matters is about discipleship of Jesus Christ. His, his identity as first has to be our purpose. Starts with us orienting our lives around the person of Jesus. We have to start with Jesus. This race is about Jesus and it's about becoming like Jesus. We begin with him. Our hope is found in Jesus. Our purpose is found in Jesus. The message that we proclaim is Jesus. The love that motivates this call to discipleship comes from Jesus. This is, this is all about Jesus. Our mission as a church is to proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's not just something that we write on the wall out there that we can look at and check a box that we have a great designed mission statement. It's why we're here is to proclaim Jesus. It's why we talk about Jesus. Today we're going to look at three different sets of texts. If you have the YouVersion app, that'll be the easiest way for you to follow along. Just click the events and you'll be able to find Westway Christian Church running the race that matters um, starting strong. And then I'll give you page numbers as we go through. We're going to talk about three things. If we want to start strong, we need the support of other people. We need to be disciplined. And we need to count the cost. These three things are crucial to us if we want to start strong. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Galatians 2. Verse 2, if you have a bi the Bibles in front of you, that's on page 727, if you want to just grab one of those. So Paul's going to kind of jump, or we're going to jump into a little bit of a, like there's some conversation that's been happening where we're going to jump in here to Galatians uh, chapter 2. The, the, the actual story that Paul is talking about here is something that happened earlier in his life. I would encourage you sometime this week to go back to Acts chapter 15 and read about that. Christians call it the council at Jerusalem. Um, but he's referring back to this. And I want you to just listen and read along with me. This is Galatians. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 1. 
And then we'll read verse 2. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. So here's, here's what was going on. Paul had been in this place called Antioch. And there was, they were proclaiming the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, to people who weren't Jews. And they were having Gentile converts who were converting to Christianity. Well, this group of people from Jerusalem had gone to Antioch and they see, they see all of these Gentiles there with the gathered church. And their first response is not celebration. Their first response is accusation. And they start asking questions. Well, well, have these Gentiles been circumcised? Because you can't be a real Christian unless you become a real Jew first. And the path to become a Jew was to be circumcised. So there's this whole long scene again. I, I would love for you to read Acts 15. It's one of my favorite um, scenes in the, in the scriptures. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus go back to Jerusalem because they're going to they're hash out this conversation. Because Paul has been going around telling people, Paul's mission has been going around telling people that the, the pathway to God is grace through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the race that Paul was running, if that makes sense. That's the message that Paul was sharing with all of these Gentiles. If you want to be a, if you want to get to know who God is, it's through Jesus, it's grace through Jesus, through the work that he's done on the cross for you, and that's how you find salvation. That's how you find salvation. These Jews come, and what Paul wants to do is he goes back to the source, he wants to make sure that his efforts hadn't been wasted and he wasn't running the race for nothing. He wanted to make sure that he was proclaiming the correct gospel. He wanted to check that. And what he found was their support. What he received for them, if we were to read verse 3, now the NLT kind of adds something here. The NLT in verse 3 says, And they supported me and did not even demand that my, my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. That first little part is, is added in the NLT. What they're trying to do is provide some context because we would just read that Titus didn't need to be circumcised and we might have some questions about that. So what Paul is telling us that when they got to Jerusalem, what they learned was, no, you don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. You don't have to become a good Jew before you become a follower of Christ. And the demonstration of that was they didn't make Titus be circumcised. See, we received support. See, what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to make sure that they were in agreement. Paul wanted to make sure that the race that he was running to the Gentiles was a worthy race. He wanted to make sure that he understood the priority and the requirement of this race. Like, are we telling everybody about Jesus or are we telling some people about Jesus? Are we telling everyone about Jesus and we're talking about grace, but then we're going to 
add, add circumcision. And then we're going to add dietary rules. And then we're going to add this, and we're going to add this, and we're going to add this, and we're going to add this. So Paul's essential question is, what gospel are we preaching? What race are we running? Are we running the race that is based on Jesus' grace alone? Or are we running a different race? Paul needed their support. He wanted to know what lay ahead. Because Paul was going to continue to go on missionary journeys. Again, if you just flip through the rest of the book of Acts, what you'll see is Paul is going to this town and that town. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Thessalonica, and then Berea, and then Athens, and then Corinth. We start that next month. Paul is going on all of these things, and he wants to make sure that the race he's running is the right race. Paul has one message, grace through Jesus Christ. And if that's the wrong race, Paul needs to know at the beginning. Does that make sense? Paul needs to know at the beginning that he's running the right race. Now I want you to flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's on 716 in those Bibles in front of you. Verses 25 and 27 of 1 Corinthians 9. And here's, here's what Paul is going to do. Paul is going to compare the prize that an athlete would win with the prize that Christians receive when they live lives of disciplined faithfulness. That's what Paul is going to do. Okay? This is verse 25. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Skip down to verse 27. We're going to come back to these other verses over the next couple weeks. Verse 27. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. First off, do you kind of hear that connection back to Galatians? I don't want to run the race in vain. I'm going to discipline my body to run a race, and I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to run it in vain. Talked about this last week in our staff meeting about being disciplined. Discipline means you demonstrate patience. There's no instant gratification. It requires time, effort, and energy. This past week, we, had, we hosted the Global Leadership Summit here at Westway, and one of the speakers, Craig Rochelle, said this. He said, it's not what you do occasionally that matters, it's what you do consistently. It's not what you do occasionally that matters, it's what you do consistently. See, that's, that's what discipline is. We discipline our bodies to be consistent. And discipline, honestly, is about our, our choices. As I think back to 3,125 days, in my brain, what I think of is 3,125 decisions, 3,125 choices. And the reality of it is there's way more decisions than that. I think about the probably thousands of choices that each one of us subconsciously makes every single day. 
This morning when I left home, there are, I would say there are three main ways that, that I have driven to Westway Christian Church over the last six and a half years. There are three main ways that I've come here. And of those three, two of them are the ways that I mostly do it. And of those two, one of them is pretty much like that's my 95%. This is how I drive when I come to the Westway building. Like that was a choice. As soon as I, in fact, as soon as I back out of my driveway, which way am I going to go is a choice. And these are all, these are all subtle choices that we make. Yesterday, I put some onions on the bratwurst that I cooked on the grill. And I had like, how much, like how many onions am I going to put on? Like, that's a choice. Each and every one of us makes a number of subconscious choices every day. And discipline requires making choices. And discipleship, our discipleship, our becoming like Jesus Christ, that's a decision. This is something that we must do. And there are no shortcuts. Have you ever noticed that? There are no shortcuts. A few weeks ago, actually this was, see there, there I did it again. This was several months ago. Several months ago, I was again on Facebook, and I saw this post that someone made. I think it was on one of the shopping sites in Scotts Bluff. It, it said, ISO, in search, of, in search of chickens, must be at least six months old. Now, as a person who is married to a chicken lady, here's what I know about six months. When you buy chickens at your local chicken store. I can tell you which one that is if you want to know. We've done it twice. When you buy chickens, you buy them little. And I don't know if you know this, but they don't start producing eggs for a while. About six months. And here's what happens. For six months, those things are a money vacuum. Okay, you are buying them food. For the first several weeks, they go in a box in your shower. Um, you buy them food, you water them, you get up early in the morning, like you make sure all of the, you do all of the things, and this happens for six months. And then finally, they start, they start delivering eggs. There's a reward, right? There's no shortcut. And I found it was so fascinating that the person who was looking for eggs wanted, like, they didn't, I'm going to make a value judgment and I'm not going to feel bad about it. They didn't want to do any work. Here, you start off my chickens for me and then I'll, ta- I'll, I'll, I'll reap the reward. You sow, I will reap. See, discipline requires time, effort, and energy. There aren't any shortcuts. And as what we and as we think about like starting the discipleship process strong, as we think about running the race that matters, we have to be disciplined. What does discipline look like as we think about spiritual training? And and this this might be another one of those spaces for us where where we hear about God's grace, we hear about his mercy through Jesus Christ. We know that that we're not not doing things to, um, to receive, we're not working to receive from God. 
We're not earning our salvation. We're not doing any of those things. So what does, what does it mean that we want to be disciplined in our spiritual training? Yesterday I was watching, I was watching the Big Ten Network. I was really disappointed that we haven't hit the, hit the mode yet on Saturdays where they show old football games all day because I'm ready for some college football. But they were interviewing Matt Rule, coach of, I, I don't have to tell you who Matt Rule is, you know. And if you don't know, we live in Nebraska. I've had to make this adjustment. You can too. Matt Rule is the coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers football team. And they were interviewing him about the process that his team was making as they got ready for the first game in a few weeks. And he used this phrase that I just thought was fascinating and it fit perfectly with what we're talking about today. He talked about stacking days. Talked about stacking days. Getting together as a team, offense, defense, special teams, quarterbacks, all the little progress that they were making. We made this much progress today, so we're going to stack a day. So tomorrow, we're going to add to that progress. And the next day, we're going to add to that progress. And we're going to add, and we're going to add, and we're going to add. We're going to stack days. We're going to build on what we are working on. And as we think about spiritual disciplines, one of the things we want to do is we want to, we want to stack days at the Global Leadership Summit last week, one of my favorite speakers was a guy by the name of James Clear, and he talks about breaking bad habits and starting good habits. He talked about the aggregation of marginal gains. That's what it means to stack days. I've got this little tiny improvement today. And then tomorrow, what I'm going to do is I'm going to add to that little, I'm going to make a little tiny improvement on top of that one. And then I'm going to make a little tiny improvement and add it to that one. And I'm going to take a little tiny improvement and I'm going to add it to that one. He breaks it down. It's like a 1% increase of performance. Just 1%. And 1% doesn't sound like very much to us. And as he broke it out, he showed us a chart. He said over a year, those 1% by the end of the year will add up to a 39% improvement. Stacking days, little changes. There's a group of people that have committed to reading their Bibles here at Westway. I, I asked this back in August. I said, if you want to commit to reading your Bible for five minutes a day, let me know. We'll create a text thread. We'll communicate and dialogue with one another. And I had a group of people who did that five minutes a day. And see, the thing is, because I'm a human being, I know what some of us think when we hear five minutes a day. Like if there was a continuum with two arrows, one of those arrows is going to be this. Five minutes, actually this, this whole thing is the five minutes a day, what good could that do continuum? Some people are over here. These are the people who when they hear five minutes a day, their move is to be pridefully arrogant because what they do is they read their Bible 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day. And what those people do is they sit in judgment on all the five minute a dayers because that's not a real Christian. Like what good could that do? Because I'm reading my thing 20 minutes a day. And then there's the other side of the five minute a day continuum. 
And I think for many of us, this is where many of us live. Five minutes a day doesn't sound like very much. I don't, I don't feel like I'm going to grow if I do that five minutes a day. How can I possibly grow in five minutes a day? And what I shared with this group earlier in the week, before I heard a New York Times bestseller communicate this, which really was good for my ego, I said, you know what? If you read your Bible five minutes a day, every day for seven days, that is 35 minutes a week. You know how amazing that is? Do you know how much God can work in 35 minutes a week? One of my favorite verses, get to find it on here. It's from his book of Zechariah. And he says this, do not despise these small beginnings. That's actually the Lord speaking to Zechariah. See, the people are rebuilding the temple and all they have is this, is this foundation. And they're wondering, is this going to be good enough? Like, like when are we going to add to this thing? And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes when we talk about Luke chapter 14. But we just have this foundation. I'm going to use a word that we don't often hear in church. Foundations aren't very sexy. Right? It's just, it's just a block of concrete in our day and age. It's not very attractive. And the people are wondering, like, when is this going to be a temple? Isn't that our question? We start off as Christians, and we just want the temple. The people are wondering, when is this thing going to be a temple? And the Lord tells Zechariah to tell the people, tell them, don't despise small beginnings. It is enough that someone is holding a plumb line. Because that thing is going to be something someday. And what I want to tell you is if, if, you're on that, if you're on either end of the continuum, don't be a prideful, arrogant person and judge other people. And if you're over here, don't despise a small beginning. See, I think if you read your Bible for a minute a day, I believe that God would not despise that. And you would learn and grow in your discipleship. You would learn and grow in your relationship with other people. And it has nothing to do with your effort. It has everything to do with what God's word is. The way that God's word changes us and transforms us. I would encourage you to think about disciplines. To do it. One of the other things that James Clear said was time magnifies whatever you feed it. Time magnifies whatever you feed it. Starting strong when we think about our, our spiritual race that we're running requires discipline. It requires the support of others. It requires a trajectory. Because as we grow in our Christian walk, we ought to be able to look back and see a trajectory. We've talked about this before. 
And it is very infrequent that our trajectory between where we are now or where we began and where we're going to finish, it is very rare that our trajectory is a straight line. In fact, I would be concerned about someone if they, if they said it wasn't more like this. That's my trajectory. Growing, man, struggling. Growing, struggling, 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 struggling. Growing. We see is a trajectory of growth. Lastly, let's look at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. This is in a section where Jesus is talking about humility. Mark, Luke begins chapter 14 by, by talking about a man who had been, who was, his arms and legs were swollen. And it's the Sabbath. And Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee to eat a meal. And if, you've, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know what's going to happen. Jesus heals the man, much to the frustration of the gathered Pharisees. And then as Jesus is waiting for the meal to start, he notices something kind of interesting. In this house, there's this group of people who are, who are constantly jockeying for the best seat in the room. And because he's Jesus, he's not like us, he doesn't go home and Facebook post about it. Because he's Jesus, he says, hey, I'm noticing something. All of you prideful, arrogant people are jockeying for the best seat in the room. Those who are first shall be last. Those who are last shall be first. You should sit in the back of the room. That way, if someone more important or less important than you comes in, the master can ask you to come and sit at the front. Like it's this whole scene. And then one of the men says, it will be good to eat a meal in the kingdom of God. And that's a true statement. But one of the things that I've learned as I've, as I've read through Scripture and become familiar with what Jesus often does next after people say, like, spiritual-sounding things that sound good, often those things are spiritual platitudes. Often what those people are doing is saying things that, like, Jesus is here, so I need to say something that Jesus would like. I think it can sometimes be easy for us to fall under that, right? We say spiritual things. When we're around Christians, we say spiritually sounding things. And that's what this guy's doing. So then Jesus tells this long parable about this man who had prepared a feast. And he invited all of these people. And the implication is they accepted. They said they were going to come to the feast. So receive an invitation in the mail. RSVP. Yes, Jesus will be there. Only on feast day, nobody shows up. So this man sends his servant out to find all of the people who RSVP'd yes. And one of them's like, well, first I got to bury my father. I just bought some oxen. I got to try them out. I'm not sure how you try out oxen. But they come up with all of these excuses. And then what Jesus does, or what this man does, is he says, okay, go out to, go out to the highways and the hedges and just invite anybody who will come. Like whoever wants to come, just invite them to come, right? And there's this implication when we, when we read the story, 
Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are the people who were invited to the party, said yes, they would come, only at the time of the party they didn't show up, and now they're going to invite everybody else. So that's the Gentiles, that's the guys who have swollen arms and swollen legs, and all of the wrong people that are coming in. That's the context of these verses. And then Jesus says this in verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might compete, complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how can you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. See what Jesus is doing to people who, to people who offer him spiritual platitudes. What Jesus is saying is there's a cost to following me. It's going to cost you something. Something is going to be required of you. And as we've said, this isn't about, I'm not earning my salvation. I'm not doing things to add to my salvation. I'm not doing things to receive more of a salvation. But there's a cost to following Jesus. And at the beginning of this, of this race of discipleship, we need to count the cost. We need to not lay a foundation without understanding what the cost is going to be. Because that, that concrete block of a, of, of a foundation is going to be something that's mocked by other people. Why would you start something and not finish it? This is about considering the cost before we enter into this relationship with Jesus. It's going to cost us everything. It's going to demand everything of you. So back to this question I asked at the very beginning. How, how do you run 3,125 days in a row? Lots of other things have to lose their priority is an answer to that question. Like sleep, as a for instance, has to lose a priority. I went back and I, I found 
this date. It was May 29th, 2014, and it was actually before this run streak. I said I'd been in run streaks in the past. We were living in Worthington, Minnesota, about three hours, three and a half hours southwest of Minneapolis. And I had, I had to get on a plane at 6 a.m. that morning. And I knew, because of what I was going to be doing, I was going to be flying to a couple different places, and I was going to end up in Kansas. Then I was going to be in a car for four and a half hours. And the next thing I knew, the way that my day was going to go, it was going to be like 11 p.m. by the time like the day was over. So I start asking myself these questions. Do I want to run at 11 p.m. at night? Nope. So I know what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to go to bed at 9 by 9 p.m. the night before this. I'm going to set my alarm for 11.45 p.m. at 12.05 a.m. because I'm making the day. I'm going to go out. I'm going to run my mile. I'm going to go home, shower, be in the car. And that, like, my day is going to be 11.45 p.m. till probably 11 the next day. So what Jesus is calling us to do is to count the cost of the things that we do. There are going to be things, there are going to be decisions, there are going to be choices that we have to make, that we have to put other things by the wayside when we want to be a follower of Jesus, when we want to accept the call to be a follower of Jesus. Other things are just not going to be as important, and some of them are going to seem very important. Some of them relationally are going to seem very important to us. We're going to be concerned about what our friends and our family members think of us if we become a follower of Christ. We're going to be filled with anxiety about that. We're going to worry that we're going to say something at work and it's going to cause people to be upset or angry with us. This is the cost of being a disciple. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ is for us to subordinate every other thing for him. Because as we're going to talk next week, we're, we're not running our race. We are running the race that he has set out for us. Which means he sets the rules for the race. I've run the summit to summit a few times. From Summit, Summit Christian College to the top of the monument and then back down. It's 7.2 miles. My time has varied over the years. You know what? If I just went home and ran on my treadmill and I put the decline down, right? So where it was, an, where it was a decline, not an incline, I could run 7.2 miles faster on my treadmill than I could that day. Could I turn that time in? No, because I'm not running my race. I'm running God's race. If we want to run God's race, we have to run the way that He wants us to. Running the race that matters, discipleship requires that we start strong. We need the help and the support of other people. We need to be disciplined and we need to count the cost. And see, here's the really good news. Much like each and every one of us, we're born with this, with this nuchal li- ligament in the back of our head. 
So we're all born to run. We are born to be a disciple of Jesus. Every single one of us is born to be a disciple of Jesus. When Jesus made mankind, he designed us in his image. And what that means is, because we were made in God's image, that means we can be like Jesus. We can be like him. And for this, we need the help and the support of other people. Here's here's what some of us need to do. We need to demonstrate humility, and we need to ask someone the question, how do I start? How do I start? I, I don't know how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Like, I see the way... My friends and my family members behave in the midst of hardship. I see how they're living lives filled with joy. I see how they don't give in to the hate of our time. I see how they're living life and they're, they're giving life to other people. I see how you're doing that. And I, like, I need to know the answer to that question. How are you doing that? And if we were to, if you were to ask me that question, hey, John, can we meet? at a coffee shop. Like we would have lots of conversation and then eventually we would get to the start of your discipleship journey is, I'll say what Luke said to me, oh, that's easy. And we know that's not easy, right, Christians? But we would start off and we would say, oh, that's easy. Believe that Jesus is the Lord. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Repent of your sins. We would say, be immersed. We would say, confess with your tongue. Confess with your life that Jesus is Lord. Like, that's the starting point for discipleship. This is what, this is what we would say to someone. And then we would talk about the discipline required, the time, effort, energy that was required, the cost that was required This is how we start strong as disciples. This is how we start strong as disciple makers. We recognize we need one another. We show discipline. And we count the cost. And if you are not a disciple of Jesus, I want you to start. I want you to start. I want you to start this race with us. Because as crazy as 31, 25 days sounds, like some days, honestly, it's just muscle, muscle memory. I have no idea how I got through it. Just went out and did it. And that requires discipline. It requires time, effort, and energy on our parts. And we want you to join this race of discipleship with us. We want to invite you into that. That's what Becky said earlier. God is just inviting us to run the race that matters. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you have invited us to participate in your work. You have invited us to be disciples. You have invited us to be disciple makers. And I ask that we would start strong. We might start small, but we're going to start strong. Pray that you would give those who, who need to ask the question that you would give them courage. 
pray that you would give those of us who may receive that question equal courage and love and honesty and a willingness to point to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.